Wow, we're in the Gospel of John still, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Gospel of John. As you're turning there, I have a, I have a question for you. Where does food come from? The store, right? <laughs> Parents, please don't do that to your kids. Make sure you, you, know, you really share the whole details there. But have you thought about that as you sit down? Where does food come from? Do you think through the process even? You know, the, the question comes that usually does in our house at some point with the young kids. When we sit down to have hamburgers or steak and my little girls say, Dad, where does steak come from? Let's eat first. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. <laughs> There's a process there, right? Do you think about that, though, when we sit down to eat? Or how about milk? How many of you enjoy milk? I mean, I'm sorry, the real milk, not coconut or goat milk or any of that stuff. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting in trouble now. But the real 2% cold milk, you know, have you thought about that? Where does that come from? Does it just magically appear in, in two gal- or a gallon size at Costco? Or is there a process, you know? Obviously, you've been around, you understand the process. I remember... A number of years ago, we were visiting family in Indiana. My parents live in northern Indiana, and, and I have a lot of cousins in that area. And a lot of those cousins are Mennonite, a lot of farmers, and, and one in particular is a dairy farmer. And so we spent some time. Madeline was probably three or four, and she came with us and saw the whole process of, of cows being milked and, and what that looked like. It was very involved. It doesn't just show up on the shelf. There's a whole process there. But I don't know about you, I don't think about that. When my wife says we need milk, I just go to the store and buy milk. It's very convenient, actually. I can go and just purchase whatever kind I want, multiple different kinds. I don't think about the work that goes into providing milk or providing the food that I have. Well, how about this question? What's your favorite snack food? Doritos, pretzels, fruit, chocolate-covered fruit. Do you realize that we live in a minority culture in the world that has snacks. A lot, of, a lot of countries don't necessarily have, I mean, they may have fruit as a snack, but not snack foods. We have aisles and aisles of just snack foods to choose from. That's the culture in which we live, the way that we, we see food in some ways. Food for most people in the world is not a snack item. It's something that sustains life. If you remember from last week, as Jesus comes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there's a crowd of people there, and they're from, they're from a poor uh, society. To them, food, bread, fish are not snacks, it's a meal. It's, it's what they need to get to the next day. For them, you work to eat. For us in America in 2016, you eat and then go to work. It's a little different. They were in a non industrialized community, not so for us. We can stop by our local Safeway and pick up dinner, run home, place it in our stoves and and push a button and 60 minutes later, dinner's ready. Not so for these people, this crowd that surrounded Jesus. For, For them, food meant lots of work. But think about this when you sit down for a juicy steak. For you to eat that steak, something had to die. If it doesn't die, and you don't eat, you die. Something else dies for you to live. Think through that. Log that away as we go through this morning. I want you to take that perspective as in this passage we have here. Jesus has just finished feeding the masses. You know, it says 5,000, but with men and children, it's probably closer to 15,000, maybe 20,000. 
And, and what's the response to this incredible miracle that Jesus does? They, they wanna crown him king, not because he's come to save them from their sins, but because he is now their, their food supply. So follow with me as we read John chapter six, verses 15 through 34. <coughs> Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there was, had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they, got, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word that teaches and guides us in showing us who you are, bringing understanding to our needs and the one that can meet those needs in Jesus. Father, we ask as we look into your word this morning that you would be our teacher, our guide, our instructor, that we see and understand what your word says, that you would apply it to our life, that we would come away different, changed in light of your word and what you do. Father, help us to see you as the, the true bread, not just the bread supplier, but the one who came to be bread for us. And may as we read your word and and see you, may we not just stop there, but may we trust in you. May we believe in you. And may you be honored and glorified in this place. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're gonna walk through this passage like we're going on a hike. Any, anyone here like to go on hikes? You know, a hike in some ways, huh? do you, when you go hiking, do you like to go hiking and keep your head down? You know, just watch your feet. That's not usually what you do on a hike, right? You're wanting to, to look out and see what there is when you're hiking. 
So I want to guide you this morning as we hike through God's word by pointing out some things. I want you to, to make notice of this and write this down, okay? There's a couple of things. There's two main things I want you to see as we walk through this passage. First, Jesus is more than our food provider. He's the meal. Jesus is more than our food provider. He's the meal. So take note of that as we walk through. You're going to see that pop up multiple times through this passage. I want you to see it. I want you to capture it in your minds. The second thing I want you to see is Jesus is meant to be trusted, not just seen. Jesus is meant to be trusted, not just seen. As we journey through this text, you'll see people that miss who Jesus is and why he's come. And I don't want you to miss that this morning. So those two things there. Jesus is more than our food provider. He's the meal. Write that down. Jesus is meant to be trusted, not just seen. It's good to take notes. You guys know that, right? It kind of allows your brain to catch up what's being said. And there's a lot of words that are said in a sermon usually. I don't know if you even know how much, but Madeline asked me on a weekly basis, Dad, how many words are you at? And I'm, I'm at 5,000 to 6,000 words that you hear. I'm not expecting you to get all of that, okay? So yeah, you can take a deep breath there. But there's certain things I want you to see as we go through this so that you can take what we have here and apply to your life as you leave. So Jesus is more than our food provider. He's our meal, and Jesus is meant to be believed on, not just seen. If you can pull from your memory from last week or even just glance through the first 15 verses of John 6, the point of, of the miracle of Jesus feeding the crowd of 5,000 or more was not just to give a meal. It wasn't just to supply food. Although these people were hungry and had no food with them, he was showing that he was more than just a mere man. He is the bread from heaven. He can not only satisfy our earthly longings for food, he can satisfy our eternal longings for peace and rest. But the people completely miss it. In verse 14, they, want to th they think of him only as a prophet, and then they want to make him king so that he can be that vending machine. Their heart is fully displayed by Jesus in our text. In verse 26 that I read earlier, Jesus says, truly, truly, and by the way, when Jesus says truly, truly, he means it, so pay attention. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He lets us know how they responded. They believe Jesus to be a great source of prosperity, but not as their savior from sin. And this, this is an indictment in our culture today too. Because our culture is, is running after those that are preaching prosperity. That are preaching we should have it all. That we should be healthy and wealthy. And that these preachers tell us that we should only think positive thoughts and pray for God to bless us materially. You know, a year or so ago, I came across a blog by a trusted Christian who wanted to show the scary similarities between prosperity preachers and fortune cookies. I don't make this stuff up. This is serious. Fortune cookies, okay? This is, I'm going to read a couple. And you can tell me. I want, you to, I want to read it and you tell me, is this a prosperity preacher or a fortune cookie? Happiness is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to cope with it. Is that a fortune cookie or a prosperity pastor? Fortune cookie. Here's the next one. You're not responsible for other people's happiness. You're responsible for your own happiness. Fortune cookie or prosperity pastor? Prosperity pastor. Last one. You can just as easily talk yourself out of your dream as you can talk yourself into it. Prosperity pastor. 
This is scary. There's a whole lot on this. You start going through this and realizing this is being fed to the millions. People buy this stuff up and they, they log, they just link into this prosperity mindset. You turn on your television, you walk down the aisle of your Christian bookstore after you make your way through the, the incense that's burning and the Christianese signs and the statues and the praying hands and you find a book at the end where the guy's smiling at you telling you can have it all. Folks, that's not Jesus' gospel. You don't find that in his gospel. Jesus is telling these people and us here this morning that he didn't come into the world mainly to give bread. He came to be bread. And now, don't get me wrong. Jesus do, he does care about our physical lives. He does. But he cares 10 million times over about our eternal life. Jesus didn't come into our world mainly to deliver us from sufferings of this present age. He came to deliver us from the wrath to come. He didn't come to give us an easy life now, but an eternal life. The people don't see this. The people just want ease. They want freedom from the work they have. And Jesus turns away and goes to the mountain in verse 15. So now we come to verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Now the other passages in the gospels give a little insight, but Jesus literally sends the disciples away to go into the sea, and he's going to go a different direction. Verse 17, they got into a boat and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough and became a strong, and because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Wouldn't you? And he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is, again, a truly incredible thing that happens here in the text. You know, I, I want you to notice right in the middle of chapter 6, John just plops this story. I find it intriguing that he's talking about the feeding of the 5,000 and then talks about this and goes right back into Jesus is the bread of life. But why, John? Why is this here? Because he doesn't expand anymore. He, he leaves the story. He goes right back into the discussion with those of the crowd. And, and I believe as I started chewing through this and what it meant here, what he's trying to convey, is, it's really for the disciples because when the question comes later, Jesus doesn't even answer where he was at or even describe what happened. But it's for the disciples to see and understand again who Jesus is, and it's for us. If you remember back in verses 12 and 13, there was a point, there was a reason why Jesus says to them to gather up those leftovers. You remember from last week, I talked about that, the significance that I believe of the 12 basketfuls. And I can imagine they're on the boat and the bread's probably with them. They had nowhere else to, you know, they didn't have a locker. So they just brought on the boat. So they're in the midst of the boat, striving for three or four miles and staring at the, the bread. And they're frightened. You know, this miracle in, in these five verses is for the disciples and for us. That Jesus is meant to be trusted, not just seen. The disciples gather up the fragments of their 12 basketfuls of, of food. You know, I, again, remembering Jesus doesn't do anything half-hearted in ministry. He doesn't just sort of serve people. 
You know, he took 150 gallons of water in John 2 to turn it into the best wine. And then he takes five loaves and two fish and feeds over 15,000 people. He doesn't do anything, just kind of, sort of. He, he does it in a way that proves that he can provide. And Jesus is saying to, to those men then and to us this morning that when you serve me and you continue to give and give and give yourself until you cannot give anymore, I will take care of you. Jesus says to them, I will be enough for you. When you give out your life, I will be your satisfaction. The more you give of your life to others, the more I will be life to you. Jesus doesn't leave us or leave them wanting. He doesn't leave us in need because when we are in him, we have all that we truly need. Jesus is more than our food provider. He's the meal. So I believe the meaning that Jesus walking on the water towards the boat in verse 20 is that these guys had had, if you remember, an extremely hard day before they even approach this crowd that comes to them. They're ready to rest. Do you remember that from last week? They're wore out from ministry. And they want, they're ready for Jesus to send them away, to go home. They need to find lodging and food. And Jesus says, no, I'm, we're going to serve them right here. And the whole thing unfolds of when Jesus takes his bread. If you think about that, just the magnitude of what happens. You know, in, in, a, in a few minutes or 30 minutes or so, we're going to have communion. Okay, And there's over 100 people here. And it takes us about five minutes for the men that come up front to gather this and to serve you. But if there's a crowd of 15,000 people, that probably took a long time for those 12 disciples to get the food to them. They were already wore out. They're already exhausted. And then they continued to serve. And then to think through the fact of what, they, what their eyes just saw. They saw Jesus take five loaves and two fish and multiply it to feed 15,000 people. Their brains can't really get traction. They're, they're finite. They're thinking, how is this possible? They're wore out. All these things gather into the boat now. All these men who are completely exhausted are on this boat. And they're out in the sea. And they're striving. And they're working. And the wind continues to grow. And they're there two, three, four miles. And they can't get to the other side. The, the sea is just raging. They're fighting against it. And what do they see now? They see a man, as John says. Other gospels say Mark's gospel says they weren't sure they thought it was a ghost. Someone coming towards them. It's abnormal to see people walk on water, right? Just want to make sure you're with me this morning. Has anyone seen that? It's not normal. They're tired, they're wore out, and all of a sudden this person's walking towards them? You know, these are experienced fishermen. And they're men. Men don't get scared, right? Yeah, right. They're tired. They're full because they ate their fill. There's a storm. Their life is again in danger, not from starvation, but from the wind that could just send them over. And Jesus doesn't come and give them bread. No, he comes and gives himself. I believe the focus here and what Jesus does is just merely his presence. John makes no mention of Jesus' power to calm a storm. We know from other portions of scripture, other gospel accounts, Jesus has power over nature. But that's not the point. It's Jesus' presence. That's the point. In the midst of for the struggle for them, of un, un, unsure of what's going to happen, and, and now afraid, Jesus 
comes into the midst of that. And what does he say? He says, it is I. It is I, do not be afraid. What a powerful phrase that is. I meditated on it this, this week. It is I. He's saying, I am God. I am. It's me. Believe on me. Trust me. Look at me. In the midst of, of those that are seated here this morning, in the midst of the, the uncertainty of life, the tumultuous waves that you're battling, Jesus is saying, I know you don't understand what's happening and you see no way out and I know you're afraid and scared and fearful, but look at me. It is I. Trust me. And what's the response in verse 21? They were glad. They were thrilled to to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus is meant to be trusted, not just seen. So he's shown himself to his disciples, not just once in this passage here in John 6, but twice. He's saying, I I will not just supply the bread, I am your bread. And now in the second miracle, he says, I will walk on water to be with you. He says, I will be your presence when you bring me on board with gladness. And then you will arrive at your desired haven. It will happen and you will have no recollection of how God does it. I'll just do it. Jesus says to us here this morning, I don't just give bread, I am bread. I don't just make the wind stop. I get in the boat. I'm there. An amazing story that John gives to us here just in a few verses, but he continues on. The disciples hear and see this, but what's the response of the crowd? The disciples make it to land, and John launches back into the story of the crowd seeking Jesus. If you remember again that the sign of Jesus that he performed the day before was a sign that he did to point people to himself as the bread of life. Jesus mentions this many times throughout the chapters. In fact, we're going to go through this next week. Verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 55, for my flesh is true food. Folks, this is what the miracle of the feeding of that large crowd was all about. It was a public miracle that would point people away from the present physical needs to their greatest need, salvation through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is drilling them to their ears so that they can hear it and understand it and connect And he becomes very blunt, actually, to the people Jesus does to try to shake them out of their unbelief. But as you come back to the story here, to the crowd, they're they're perplexed, not so much over the the miracle. They're perplexed of what happened there. Jesus, how did you get here? So look at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So John's informing us his other other, uh, fleets of boats that are arriving from Tiberias, probably because they have already heard of who Jesus and what he's doing. And they want in on this. They want in this. They want to see what the next miracle is going to be. One commentator 
writes about this setup. He says, Tiberius was a large city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and the multitude began their search for Jesus at Capernaum. Capernaum is located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Tiberius is several miles to the south. So these people are, are working. They're striving to get there. They want to be there to be when Jesus lands there. And they've heard, they've seen, they've heard the miracles, the, 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 the gossip, the rumors that are floating around. And remember, these people are poor. They're working, striving to earn the food that they would need for that day to eat. And so verse 24, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, these are hard-working people. They're striving to find him. It's funny that they're just, they're tracking Jesus. Like GPS would have been very beneficial to them at this point. They want to know where he's at. Where is he going next? They're, they're deducting, you know, Jesus didn't, you know, I can almost imagine the crowd thinking, well, I didn't see him get in the boat with the disciples and there's a boat here, so where is he at? They're tracking him down. And when they finally come up and reach him, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get here, really? You know, they want to know, they see the span of the Sea of Galilee and think, how did you get from here to here? It doesn't, it doesn't equate to them. It doesn't make sense to them. But Jesus doesn't even answer that question. He'll answer them, but not that question. He again diagnoses their heart in verse 26. Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus mentions that it was a sign. What does he, what does he mean here? He's, he's saying to them, you people are fixated on a product and not a person. Jesus is more than a food provider. He's our meal. It's like if Jesus was standing before them right as a billboard, pointing again to God and that God sent him. It was like a beam of glory was streaming from Jesus Christ. And so although the people enjoyed the benefits of God, a full tummy, they only thought of one thing. What would it be like to have him all the time? I mean, have you ever thought that way when you visit someone's house and they make a nice meal and you think, hmm, that's really good. Wonder what it would be like to live in their house. That's all they're thinking about here. I mean, if he provided fish and bread out of nothing, maybe he could provide some steak next time. I don't have to, to work then. If, if Jesus can do this, what would, well, I mean, life would be amazing then if, if he could continue to be there to provide all the bread and fish that we need. I mean, I can almost see the guy, the marketing guy in the group going, hey, I can develop something here. Just bring us two fish and watch Jesus what he does. I mean, they, they are poor people. They realize the work that's necessary to, to do this and they, they don't, really even key in to what Jesus says about who he is and why he's come. They're only worried about the next meal. They're only worried about food. And they looked at Jesus as their food provider and he's, he's saying to them, guys, I'm the meal. It ceased, this sign ceased to be a sign for them. They were excited for bread that would bring pleasure to their stomachs, but disregarded Christ as their true treasure. 
And the gospel was written to reveal to us the glory of Christ, not the, the glory of his gifts for us. So we must see Jesus for who he is. Jesus is meant to be trusted, not just seen. And Jesus continues in verse 27, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You know, this is a dialogue here that's happening. At this point, I, I, I guess from the end of this chapter, that they're in the synagogue here in Capernaum. So they're going back and forth as Jesus is teaching them, instructing them what life, what true life comes from. And he continues to use analogy of, of food and eating throughout the rest of the chapter. And he tells them to, to not work for food that will perish. They should not be running and pursuing and toiling and striving and spending their energy on things that won't last. It's the same for us today. There are so many in our world today that are striving and toiling to earn salvation, to work for it. And in the end, they receive food that will spoil. It won't last. It's the same issue for the woman at the well. If you remember from earlier, that Jesus comes and talks to her and offers her uh, living water. And what's her response? Great, I don't have to come back here to the well anymore. I can just have this eternal spring of water. She was looking just to have the material need, and Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. He's offering real life. And these people are after the same, a food service that will continue to supply what they need so they won't starve. And Jesus is offering so much more. He offers himself. And he says here in this passage, who has been approved by God, and the Father has set his seal, meaning all that Jesus does is in perfect alignment with God the Father. So now they ask, what should they do? Jesus answered them, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is, this is the key verse to this whole section. Here they are standing right in front of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, all-satisfying, everlasting food that endures for eternal life, who will give them real life. And their question is, what can we do to earn this? The answer is nothing. This is the gospel. You can't do anything to earn salvation. Jesus says, taste, taste and see and believe that the Lord is good. If you remember back in, in John chapter one, the first, John writes, to all, who did re, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Believing is receiving. Believing in Jesus is seeing him as the bread that he is taking him, receiving him into your life as, as the all-satisfying, life-giving treasure that Jesus is, trusting in Jesus, holding on to Jesus. I heard this quote a couple weeks ago from an old pastor, Lemuel Haynes. He once remarked about faith and trust, and he says, faith is believing or trusting with a friendly heart. Write that down. Faith is believing or trusting with a friendly heart. Folks, that's truth there. What glorious truth that is. You gladly 
trust Christ. You treasure him. You're delighting in Jesus and who he is. You rejoice in, in God the Son and are thankful for what he's done for you in your life. It's, it's not a forced trust. It's not a coercion to trust. It's not a, ah, trust. It's, yes, I trust him. I love him. I gladly trust him. That's faith. That's belief in God. Have you trusted Christ? Are you, are you trusting in him? Are you resting in him? Or are you trusting yourself and what you can do? And what you can work for? That's food that will perish. It won't last. The people here, they had an opportunity to believe, but ultimately they refuse. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do? What, what that made me see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it, is, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Right here in front of you is Jesus, and he is the true bread, not the manna that God gave. It's Jesus. And they still miss it. Sir, give us this bread always. We're hungry. They refuse to see it. And Jesus has done precisely what he's done throughout the gospel. He, he exploits some feature of Jewish belief and ritual and reinterprets it to refer to himself. He, he is the manna from God's treasury for, for what Israel has been wanting. He is the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the response, we still just want bread. We just want to be fed. They want bread supplied to them every day. They want their physical bread and they miss the spiritual need. You know, as we make through, and next week we're going we're gonna to take a, a longer section, a much more detailed section, but it's a highly debated text next week. It's been debated, in fact, by churchmen for over 700 years. There are those that believe Jesus is introducing the Lord's Supper in John 6 as we get through here. And if you come back next week, you'll hear me refute it from Scripture. I don't believe it's there. But if he continues to teach and what this bread is and who he is and why he's come. But as I thought through, as I was looking at this, it, it seemed to fit perfectly to kind of give you some teaching here this morning, some background on church history, okay? We're gonna approach communion. This is the first Sunday of the month. This is the Sunday that we as a church celebrate communion. And this passage as we lead into it, I think leads in well to what we're gonna talk about. This is the first Sunday. This is the Sunday we set aside to, to celebrate communion. But I wanna share something from church history. As I was preparing my message, I just had the privilege, I shared this last week, of attending a conference a few weeks ago, and one of the speakers shared in depth about some history on martyrs. 
And it sparked in me to want to share even in, in depth in the connection we have to uh, communion. There's a battle that's happened for hundreds of years. It's still happening, maybe not as, as lively as it once was, but it's primarily around the Lord's Supper. I want you to remember this morning as I share this, that we have incredible freedom as a church to openly and unashamedly teach from God's word and to celebrate communion as we see God's word telling us what it is. The year was 1555, almost 40 years after Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door church in Wittenberg. It was 20 years after Calvin had written his institutes. In the Church of England, the Catholic Church was on a fierce endeavor to wipe out any of its detractors. Queen Mary was just installed as ruler and began to earn her nickname as Bloody Mary. This Mary had been brought up since her infancy as a rigid adherent to the Roman Catholic Church. She was, as J.C. Ryle recounts, a very papist, a papist, conscientious, zealous, bigoted, and narrow-minded in the extreme. Her half-brother had established some sense of peace, but she quickly tore it all down and worked at her best to restore popery at its worst in most offensive forms. In the next four years, 288 people were put to death. They were not murderers, thieves, or unbelievers. No, they were unwilling to recant of their faith. They were pastors, wives, and even children. Mary was ruthless. Ryle writes, the first leading English reformer who broke the ice and crossed the river as a martyr in Mary's reign was John Rogers, a London minister. He was educated at Cambridge and then found his way to Holland and was introduced to William Tyndale. Tyndale taught him the Bible and he taught him the gospel and he would never be the same. A few months later, Tyndale was arrested for his sins against the church, namely translating the scripture in the language of the people. He left Rogers his manuscripts of the Bible and Rogers proceeded to finish his work under the codename of Thomas Matthew and the Bible once finished was called the Matthew's Bible, the first version in English. Rogers would get married to Adriana and would pastor a church in Germany, but his heart would always be for England and his people. He would move his wife and his eight kids to England in 1548 and assume the leadership at Paul's Cross Church. But on Thursday, August 3rd, 1553, Mary assumed the role of queen after her half-brother King Edward dies. Sunday, just a few days later, August 6th, 1553, was the first Sunday that John Rogers would preach. He would boldly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and for God's glory alone. And he would warn the church against pestilent popery and all idolatry. One historian commenting on his sermon said, never was any position in all history of the Reformation all things considered where the responsibilities were thrown onto one man were any greater and more important than that of Rogers. His conduct in that day was more than noble, it was magnificent. Rogers' first sermon that day at Paul's Cross Church would be his last sermon. A week later, he was placed in house arrest. At this time, he had 10 kids with one more on the way. Six months later, he would be placed in prison, taken from his home where he would live in cruel conditions for more than a year which leads to January 1555. He was summarily examined on three occasions and subsequently charged for two offenses. One, standing against the church at Rome. Two, saying that in the sacraments, 
There was no substantiation. The second reason was why so many reformers were burned at the stake. It was because of the peculiar doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, and on that doctrine, in almost every case, hinged life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused, they must die. And what was this peculiar doctrine? It was the question on whether the real presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ is consecrated in the elements of the bread and wine for the Lord's Supper. Do these people really believe that the body and blood of Christ was really that is corporally, literally, locally, materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? In other words, is Jesus being crucified again and again when they partake of the Lord's Supper? And this was Roger's response. I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ that was born of a virgin and hanged on a cross, really and substantially. I answered, I think it to be false. I cannot understand really and substantially to signify otherwise than corporally. But corporally, Christ is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be corporally in your sacrament. I agree with Rogers. Rogers had no communication with his wife all the time he was spent in prison. He had not even met his youngest child. He pleaded with them for the opportunity to see his wife and his kids or at least speak to them, and it was refused. The morning of February 4th, 1555, he was woken from his cell at the prison and demanded to get ready. He was marched through the streets right in front of the church where he had only one opportunity to preach. Thousands of spectators now in the streets and in the sea of people, Rogers gets a glimpse of his wife holding a newborn baby. A child he'd never met. And surrounded with his wife are 10 children standing there looking at their daddy. One commentator writes, their anxious faces were all fixed on him and their voices of pain reached his ears. Another commentator wrote, it's difficult even to imagine anything more tender and affecting than this parting scene, this last adieu to a beloved wife and so numerous offspring all in tears. He stood the shock of feelings of a father and husband, but with the unshakable confidence of a Christian marching to his death. As he passes his family ever so briefly, he's repeating the 51st Psalm. As he's tied to the stake and wood laid at his feet, he exhorts to his followers to remain true to the faith and remember his teachings. And when asked if he would recant of his teaching, he responds, that with which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. And the next moment, the wood that was set at his feet was set on fire and it slowly began to burn. As it began, Began to burn, he lifted his arms high in the air, and Ryle said the enthusiasm from the crowd, no new bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Another one said, Rogers, he went to death as if he was walking to a wedding. He would be burned at the stake for his belief in the Lord's Supper. I want you to see this, brothers and sisters. We do not haphazardly do a communion service just because it's the first of the month. We do not preach the Bible here, have Bible studies here, do biblical counseling here as merely sport or to fill our time. This is a life and death endeavor. 
I want you to see the seriousness of what we do here in remembrance of those wives and children who saw in their husbands and dads a willingness to stand for truth and to preach it no matter what would be the consequences. To sacrifice and suffer for the sake of what they believed in. I want us to see it this morning. John Rogers didn't desire to gain glamour or prestige. He died to preach the gospel. He was willing to stand on the truth of God's word. He died so that you can hold a Bible in your hand. So as the men come forward this, this morning, I want you to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. So much more than what Rogers did. But I also want you to acknowledge and to thank God for men like Rogers. He was one of 288 that sacrificed themselves to proclaim the gospel. Remember Christ and all that he did for us in that cross. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. Father, my heart and mind is stirred again to remember of what you've done for us. In a much greater way, you placed yourself on that cross willingly. You're the only one ever in all of history to die an innocent, perfect death. And you did it for us, wretched sinners. John Rogers knew this. He, he recognized who he was in light of Jesus Christ. And he was willing to sacrifice his life to proclaim who you are and what you've done. Father, may we remember that this morning as we partake of this, as we take the bread and the, and the juice, we remember what you've done for us. Thank you. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us. I ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.